your hands together. Amen. Zero B, red B069. Again, how many of 069s were in there? <laughs> I think I'm figuring out his secret. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, all the dads out there, happy Father's Day. Um, this Father's Day, I've been a little bit sort of contemplative um, for whatever reason, I've been, I mean, well, not for whatever reason, the reason's probably pretty obvious, because Father's Day, but I've been thinking a bit about my dad lately, but the, for whatever reason is I've been sort of, uh, you know, just looking at things and, and just try, um, and just, I guess, appreciating my dad in a, in a fresh new way. Um, I work a lot with uh, the homeless and what we see is a lot of generational trauma. We see a lot of people who... Uh, have had horrible upbringings, and the outworking of that is they are living terrible lives. The, the fruit in their life is just is horrible. And a lot of it is largely due to their upbringing. Um, and, and as I'm sort of thinking of that, I'm thinking of a, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people I know, and particularly people of my generation and, and the frustrations we've had towards our parents. And then you know, where, where, we, where we feel perhaps our parents have let us down or the shortcomings and, and then actually looking at the upbringing of those parents, looking at how, what that, you know, my parents went through to, just in their upbringing, what people I know went through in their upbringing. And the truth of it is, is these guys and girls gave my generation in, in the, the family members I'm thinking of and, and myself and my brothers, a whole lot better upbringing than they got. And as much as we might be a little bit frustrated with our parents for perhaps doing this or not doing this or saying this or being in these ways, I, I look at, you know, we look at um, their upbringings and the upbringing that we got compared to theirs is infinitely better. I know there's one, one person who's coming to mind at the moment who is, you know, frustrated with the way he was brought up and, and he's, you know, he's a man in his 40s now. A lot of resentment towards parents. Uh, and, yeah, there was, it could have been a better childhood, but when you look at actually how those parents were raised, the trauma, the neglect, the, just the horrific injustice that were done to that child to that person as a child compared and, and the fact that they're a halfway sane adult is a miracle in itself and the fact that they're able to actually be high functioning lovely people and yeah they make mistakes and, and as i look at the, the this person that's my age and, and just think wow if you just took one step backwards and you realize that that person did the very best they could with what they had you might have an entirely different perspective on your childhood and, and, I, and I expect they might have a whole different perspective on their parent. And with my, and as I, as I look like that with my dad, I, I'm, I, there's so much regret on my, my behalf, on my behalf because I realize that I've realized this stuff too late. Where I wish that I had been much younger when I was able to appreciate that what my parents gave me growing up was so much better than what they got. 
Um, Melissa shared a little bit about my father's history uh, recently, and for those that, that you know don't remember or perhaps didn't hear, my dad was an orphan. His mum surrendered him when he was uh, three years old to an orphanage. He he never knew who his dad was. Um, he that was always, and for his whole upbringing, that was a it, it was that w- it, it aided him. And um, as he was a young adult, he he didn't know who his mother was. He didn't know who his father was. And and he actually so he was at the age, at the age of eight. He went to uh, he was fostered to what what my, my grandparents and. He was never uh, able to be adopted by them uh, because his mother wouldn't allow it. His mother would never see him but wouldn't allow this couple who had taken him in to adopt him. So the whole time he's thinking, well, maybe if she's not allowing it, it's because she's going to come back for me. And and, uh, she just never did. And he, uh, he eventually tracked her down. I think it was in his early 20s when he found her, three months after she'd passed away. And so he never had so many questions to ask, which he was never able to ask. So he was connected with the extended family and was able to ask some sort of questions. The main question he had was, who is my father? And nobody knew. Nobody knew. The name Hill came from the person that his mother was dating when she was pregnant, like, like when she was midterm and, and when she actually had him. It wasn't the father. So he, this whole time, his search was, who am I? Who, like, who's my parents? Who's my dad? And, and, and that, I, and I know for a large portion of his life, that aided him. And, and, it, and he went, you know, he would get the DNA test done and search the globe to try and find a match, to find out where his family was, to find out who his dad was, because he, he just needed to know. And right towards the end, I had some wonderful conversations with him. He, he was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 60, and he lived for 11 more months after the diagnosis. And, and it was pretty amazing being able to have conversations with somebody who was about to step onto the other side. And, uh, and uh, to be really honest, there were like elements of jealousy when I was talking with him. It's just like, wow, in a matter of weeks, you're going to be in the presence of Jesus. In a matter of weeks, you're not going to feel pain. In a matter of in a matter of weeks, you're going to understand everything that the scripture says that we'll know, even as we are known. And and it was just, you know, I mean, I, I knew, and there was, you know, I remember telling him about this song. Uh, it, it's it, uh, it's called I Can Only Imagine, and it's just this singer who is actually processing the death of his dad he, he he wrote this song about imagining what heaven is like and and having a conversation with somebody who was going to be there really soon and it was fascinating and and my dad he was always a, a believer in god he um but he I mean probably most people w- will never study the scriptures like a preacher will and and he he hadn't and he was asking me questions about what did the bible say about heaven and and things like that and and being able to talk to him about that. And in these conversations in that stage, I was like, how do you process not knowing who your father is? How, how, did, you, how did you, you know, and, and he was, and, and this is at the end of a, you know, a, he, he lived 60 years, so it wasn't long, long, and, but it was definitely wasn't short. He, he said, he got to know God as father, like most people never will. And 
by the end of his, towards the end of his life, he actually realized that God was his dad. He knew that. That was part. He had no anchor to hang. I mean, he, his foster dad, my, my granddad, was, was, you know, the one who raised him and, he, and my dad loved him and, and all of that. But he knew as far as genetically wh- where the fabric of his being was connected to. There wasn't a man he could hitch that trailer to. And he, he w- could only connect it to God. And at the end of it, he was able to talk about, the un- actually understand the privilege of, of being in a position where is most of us would not call it an ideal position, but it is certainly one of the only few that affords the understanding that my dad is God. And that was an amazing conversation. And, and I, I left with a whole new level of respect for my father and understanding that he had reached something in God that I might never understand properly to the degree that he did. And what I want us to do this morning is we're going to just have a little chat about whose child is this? This sermon, I've put a title on it, whose child is this? And it's, it's the thought came from from that conversation I had with my dad, and there's another conversation that went on in recorded in Matthew's Gospel 13 and 55. It says this: This is when Jesus had come back to his hometown. He had already started to make a name for himself around Jerusalem, around the around the traps. He was a bit of a you know celebrity, if you like, in our context. It would be someone who imagine you know you've got the sing song shows and they're singing and you're like, um, you know, the idol worship is that what it's called? The Voice. I tease Melissa; she likes them. Australia's idol and or the talent one anyway and you know the person from nowhere then they'll suddenly be a celebrity because they'll win this program or they'll be well known because they're po- and this is what happened to Jesus all of a sudden he was just rising through the ranks of a w- amongst like the popular teachers because that's who the cool people were back in the day that's who the powerful and popular and proper people were were actually the the bible teachers imagine that chin we'd be like the celebrities we'd be like the ultra cool what happened? How far we've fallen as a co- <laughs> And Jesus was one of the, he was this up and coming guy. And he goes back to his town and he didn't get the reception you might think. Or, or did he? What, you know, it turns out Israel was not so different to Australia. Not real, not a big fan of tall poppies. Not a big fan of people rising out of the status quo and, 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 you know, it's just this, that thing just need to pull him back down to earth. And, and this is, Jesus is there and he's starting to minister and he's starting to show why he's risen to prominence. And, and this is, and it says that the people from his neighborhood got offended. And, and this is how they responded. They said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where did then where then did he get all these things? And they took offense at him. But they challenged, they went to like, whose kid is this? Who who are you? And and it was like, who do you think you are? But the way that they actually challenged who is, is they went straight to who's his family? What's like where you're no different from us. And and just to pull him down as and and what we Like, it doesn't seem like, you know, it, it seems like a pretty innocuous sort of um, attack. But what it's really doing is it's going for the fabric 
of who somebody thinks they are. It's actually going for the very foundation of his psyche. Like you ultimately, and a lot of us don't appreciate this, but everything you think about yourself is hinged and attached and formed and, and, and anchored to this understanding that you come from somewhere. You, your identity has to do with origin. And one of the biggest attacks we can see on humanity, it was popularized in the theory of evolution by Charles Darwin. He didn't come up with the idea, but he was the one who, where it really kicked off. And the whole idea was you come from nothing and you're going nowhere. So, and as that idea became popular, what we started to see is an aimless generation the 60s and 70s, we saw this aimless generation of people who all of a sudden were putting off the rules and the, uh, the, the, like the boundaries and parameters that the, the generations before had just held as uh, evident truths. And then we saw this, like, all of a sudden, it's like, well, hang on, why not? Like, why wait for marriage? Why not get divorced? Why not just drink ourselves to oblivion? Why not just experiment with drugs? Why not just go and do whatever we've always been taught not to do? And, and really throwing off a lot of the boundaries. And, and so much of it was rooted in, and, and it was called, uh, and a lot of it was popularized by this idea that it was freedom. Uh, freedom. And, and, and it was an era started called the post-Christian era where all of a sudden, and people considered themselves free of the, the, the bondage of religion, free of the bondage of having a Bible-based life. And when you actually study the motives behind, it, it started in the universities is where it really started. And where when interviews are done with the professors that were the ones popularizing this and basically teaching it to the students as factor is high, you know, as high probability they were it was ultimately around is they had a lifestyle that they wanted to live and the bible did not it, it, the bible really cramped it so what they started to do was this idea that there was a bang nothing was there and then it exploded and this was the idea of the big bang came into you know as, and this is probably the the idea at the moment that is you know uh being held as the fact of where where people come from is there was nothing it exploded. Somehow the inorganic became organic. That organic matter, that first single-celled amoeba, was self-replicating, which is an extremely complex system in itself. As for a single cell to be self-replicating, that's like a really high-tech, or high, it's not tech's not the word, but really involved uh, little piece of DNA for that to do that. So that came from nowhere, and, and for some reason, that started. And then the theory is, is that that got more and more complex. And, and, and the problem with this idea is that it goes against the laws of physics, it goes against the laws of nature, of thermodynamics. In nature, things don't get more complex, they get less complex. But these guys drove this idea that things would mutate and grow and improve. And, and there's, there's so much science that's ignored for this idea to be believed. And, and to, I, I was once at a uh, CSIRO, uh, it was with a group of scientists from the CSIRO. I used to 
do, Pastor Malcolm thought I was such a great speaker when he first put me on. You know, I want to know how great he was. He said, Jacob, you need to go to, to speech lessons. You need to go and learn how to communicate. You need to learn, you know. And so he went to this group called Rostrum, which was a, and the one that w- I went to was with all of these, was at the CSIRO, and there were all of these professors, and <laughs> they literally were biolog- biologi- biology professors and scientists. And uh, there was, you know, we're learning to talk, and you get, like, your different topics. And then one of the topics was speak about something that you're passionate about. And then the Lord told me, I want you to speak about creation. And I was like, oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> and then he wouldn't leave me alone with it. Where I knew he was telling me I had to talk to these biologists about creation. These guys are the ones who have got a better understanding of the theory of evolution. Of ev- These are the ones that teach the people at university what goes on. So these aren't just the people who blindly believe it because they're taught. These are the ones that teach it. And so I'm like, okay, right. Anyway, so I had enough of arguing with God. I was quite old and mature by then. I think I was 27. <laughs> and uh, so I already knew, you know, just say yes, well, which I was still learning, still am to be fair. Uh, anyway, so I was there and I, I didn't really plan much because it was something I was passionate about. I knew that I, I it, you know, mostly I just like prayed for wisdom. And, and as I got up, I, I took my watch off. And I, um, I said, if you pulled this watch apart, put it in a tin can and shook it together, how long would you have to shake it before it turned into a working timepiece? And they easily understood maths and they easily understood probability and they just said it would never happen. It, it's a statistical impossibility. And then... I said, well, if you found this watch on the floor in the bush, you're not going to think, look at this thing that's just magnificently created itself. And then I said, well, then how do you take a mouse that's about the same size and weight, infinitely more complex, and how could you say that this has made itself, this has just happened by time and chance? And these biologists, and I'm telling you, it wasn't just a few. There was maybe a dozen of them. And, and they were like PhD. These guys were PhDs. And some of their PhDs had other nice letters, which I don't even know anything about. All I do know is that these are the guys that form policy for all of the plants and animal stuff that happens in Western Australia because this is how smart they are to do with biology. Like, these guys understand the stuff. These guys write the books and stuff. And when I've asked them that, they didn't know. They said, well, that's not... And I've, and I've asked them, how does the inorganic become organic? How does a single, how does even, because the idea of evolution is that things get better. Like, it, it comes from the theory of natural selection, which is a proven theory. It, it works. And the idea with that is, is like, let's just say you get a particular species of animal and you put it in a particular environment. It will, the, the attributes that cause that animal to be more successful n- will eventually naturally breed, so they all start, that particular trait gets more and more dominant. So you'll see, like, Africa's got a great example of it where you've got a cats, lots of different type of cats, and the Bible says, and this is one of the cool ways we can understand the scripture, it says that when there was the ark, it didn't say that all the species were on the ark, it said all the kinds. So for the understanding of natural selection is a necessary step in believing the Bible, because there was a kind of feline 
on the ark. And that feline, at some point in the, uh, the continent of Africa, started to succeed in different ways, in different areas. And you would have different animals succeed, like the plains. You'd have a cheetah. And it would just get more and more streamlined and would dro- it dropped way. And the animals that were faster were the ones that were eating more and being more successful and breeding better and, and, and going like that. And the, the, small, the more powerful animals, more explosive, would uh, generally confined to the tighter areas and they would be more successful. And it's just the way that natural selection, we see it out playing all the time. Which Darwin was on the islands in the Galapagos and he was seeing animals and he's assumed that this natural selection and he's written a, a book, you know, some you know, great drawings about the finches and the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the lizards and, and he would talk about how this natural selection has caused them to progress into these different traits. And which is great and, he, and he's right. They did cause them to, tr- to change. The natural selection demonstrated in, in this small uh, isolated environment where it was really easy to see. And then the thing is, is that with that, we, we see it in a, in a way that's really easy for us to understand is dogs. Dogs come from some sort of canine heritage. Like we don't know, there was a kind of dog on the ark. That's come down and then we've got like, you know, the, the scientists tell us, that my CSIRO mates tell us, that uh, at some point the dogs deviated where a wolf has been, you know, the fox has come off and we've got a wolf and then our dogs the ones that Chinyama can't believe we keep animals in our house. Our dogs that we love come from the wolf. And the thing, cool thing is, is you could get a wolf today and you could breed it down to a chihuahua. That's, that's the reality of it through, that's not natural selection, that's uh, selective selection. But you cannot get that chihuahua and breed it back to a wolf because that animal is now less complex. So what we, this attack has been try, so trying to convince young people Whose child are you that you're nobody's? That you're the child of time and chance? That you're the child of an amoeba? You're the child of a monkey? Where the Bible says something radically different to that. The Bible says, listen to this. This is Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, and it says this. It says, then God said, let us. Now, I love that. This is Genesis 1, remember, church. Let us. Already the Godhead in full swing, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're having this conversation before time. Let us. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And then he goes on and talks about purpose. And, and then it says he made man in his own image. Created the male and female, he created them. But then the real cool thing, and this is what I want us to see, is that later on we see... In chapter 5, we start to see the genealogy and, and starting to talk about humans' progression across planet Earth. And uh, So if we go to Ad, uh, Genesis 5, 3, it says this. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image. That is the exact same language. And it goes through and it talks about the, the, uh, the, the tree, uh, the family tree of Adam, the genealogy. And then, but it's the exact same language, in his image, in his likeness. It's the same as when God made Adam and Eve in his image, in his likeness. You come from your father. You are your father's kid. You are your father's kid. You are a child of God. Now you've got, the, the only difference is, is you've got your found kids and your lost kids. 
whether you believe in God or not, it doesn't change a fact. That's where you come from. Like it doesn't change it. The only thing that changes is whether you're a found kid or a lost kid, whether you ha- come home or not come home. And, and there's this story which I love, and I think pretty much every preacher loves it because it's just, it's, I don't know, it just make I don't know, it, it's almost is just the best example for every single illustration we ever try to make. It comes back to this story we a lot of us will know as the prodigal son. And there's this story here where it says, where, where, the, where the son, he's like, Dad, I wish you were dead. Pay out now. And he's like taking his section of the inheritance. He goes off and blows it. When I say blows it, he doesn't make some, some poor business decisions. He went thrashed it, went hard, parted his little head off. Like, the works. You know, I'm talking, this is, would turn it to an MA sermon which we won't but let's just say he spent it and the scripture says on wild living the brother actually clarifies a little bit later what that wild living is but you can let your imagination do that anyway then there's a point where he runs out of cash and and, and this is actually pretty sad because i at the moment i'm with the people i'm working with there's a lot of um big uh payouts going where the government are paying people for some of the mis- things where people have been mistreated over the years and I'm talking huge payouts like $100,000 and I met someone like two weeks ago that 20, 20 days they blew $100,000 and so that's what this young bloke's done he's blown his payout in, 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 and he's just and he's hungry and he's like, oh, you know what? Life at Dad's actually wasn't that bad. He's like, I can't go back to how the way things were, but I know my dad looks after his workers pretty good. I'll go get a job with him. I'll go and be one of the guys. And it says he comes home and he says to his dad, says in Luke chapter 15, it says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I love it. It says he was lost and is found. He was dead and he's alive. It says never stopped being his son. Never stopped being his son. Just because he was living his own way. He was never disowned. <laughs> and the best thing is, is that he was... F- <laughs> the father said to his son, quick. Quick. My son's home. And God doesn't matter where you're at with God. For me, when I turned back to God, it was out of options. It wasn't like, there was no remorse in my repentance. There was no awareness of some deep majesty of God. 
this guy, this, this son that returned, as if you read the story through, he actually says he comes to a point where he was starving and he's like, there's plenty of food at my dad's house. And that's why he went home. It wasn't because he cared about the dad. It wasn't because he felt bad about how he had lived. It was like, this is not working. I'm going to go back to where I know works. And for me, it wasn't, I was flat out drug addict. I was uh, not a nice person. Um, I was a criminal. I hurt people. I did not care about many people on earth, on earth. But I came to the place where I was empty. Not in my stomach, but in my soul. I was empty. I had nothing to live for. In a sense of, I had no desire to go on. And I remember praying a prayer at one point. It was like, God, and this was my prayer. It was a like, God, if you can help me stop wanting to use drugs, because I didn't even want to stop. I did not want to get out of the life. I did not want any, all I, I didn't even want to change. I knew that I should change. I knew that I needed to. I didn't want to. I said, God, if you can help me want to change. I will serve you for the rest of my life. And you know, slowly I felt my affections change. And, and God moved me from a really dark place into, you know, it wasn't an easy road. But he met me. The same as this son came home to the father's house. And the dad met him. It says here that as soon as he saw him off in the distance, he ran to him. And that's what God does with us. That's what God did with me. He ran to me. And I have to say, 20 years on now, 20 years on, my life, because I've got friends that never changed. I've got guys that I was living right next to that never changed. They're dead or in jail right now. or in and out of jail. As I look at my life, I've got three amazing kids, a beautiful wife, beautiful home. I've got great friends. This is what God, this is, this is what a father wants to give his kids. And it matters that you know who your dad is. It matters that we know whose child this is. And I just want to pray right now, and if you've never made the decision to to come home to father's house now is your day so can I just invite everyone just to close their eyes and bow their head and we're going to pray a really simple prayer and what that prayer is it's going to it basically is similar to the prayer I prayed but basically it's going to it, the prayer is, is saying I want to come home I just invite you, to, if you would like to pray that prayer, and if you've already prayed that prayer and you, you know you're walking with God, I'd invite you to join in with us. But if you're praying this for the first time, I'd invite, I, I'd urge you just to mean it with all of your heart. 
Repeat after me, church. Dear God, I want to come home. Thank you for being my father. Help me to understand that I'm your child. Forgive me for living life my own way. Help me to walk with you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, just while every head's still bowed and every eye's still closed, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, would you just do me a favor and just slip your hand in the air just so I can see, because I'd love to be able to have a chat with you later and, and pray with you personally. And if you're online, please let us know because we'd like to get some resources to you. Just one moment. I see that hand there. One more moment. One more moment. All right. Thank you, Lord. Just Can I just tell you that like in the story we just read, how the father celebrated when the child came home, that God in heaven is celebrating right now for this child coming home. It said, the scripture actually says that there's a party going on in heaven. I want to pray for us all, especially on Father's Day. Lord, we just want to say happy Father's Day to start with God. Lord, we pray that you would help us to just to properly engage with you as Father. Lord, I know so many of us have got a tainted, distorted view of Father. Just from our upbringings, even the best dads made mistakes. Broke trust. But Lord, you never will. Help us to truly know you as Father. I pray that this next year would be a journey for us to to truly know you as Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're just going to worship church, and I just really believe God spoke to people this morning, and and we're just going to stand and invite you to stand and worship and just do some business with God and let God just continue to speak to you as we just finish in worship.